Hi, it's Scott Fox. It's time for Click Millionaires Radio. I'm back with another episode for you to entertain and educate you, expand your horizons about the possibilities of entrepreneurship and small business growth in this digital age we live in. Today is a special episode that's going to recap the questions and topics and discussions that were brought up during a recent Masterminds meeting that I held here in Orange County, California. This is a series of Masterminds meetings where entrepreneurs, local founders, service providers, and aspiring digital marketers of all sorts show up and we talk through the kinds of issues that face real people in their real efforts to become real click millionaires. So today I'm going to recap a couple of those. And uh, these are the types of topics that are, uh, I think, helpful in a real uh, down-to-earth sort of way. So no big strategy or highfalutin theory today. This is basic blocking and tackling of entrepreneurs that I hope is helpful to you. Who am I? Well, I'm Scott Fox. I'm a longtime internet entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, as they say. And I've written uh, several books about online entrepreneurship. Uh, the last one was Click Millionaires, uh, Work Less, Live More with an Internet Lifestyle Business You Love. And that's a great uh, book if you'd like to learn some more about starting your own lifestyle business based on the interests and expertise and skills that you've developed in your time on this earth. How to get more out of life by working for yourself, essentially. I do this because I grew up uh, without much money myself, and I'm here to spread the word about how I've gotten successful online as a serial entrepreneur and, and help other people, regular people, maybe people just like you, figure out how they can do it too. So today we're going to talk through these questions and answers. Like I said, I'm not going to reveal anything confidential, but this is uh, a digest, essentially, of a meeting where I had uh, 35 or 40 people around in a big circle, and they submitted questions. And I'm going to recap the sort of topics and questions that they asked about in hopes that this is helpful to you to hear the sort of answers that were brought up. I recorded a bunch of the responses, took notes, and I'm going to add my own commentary as well, and I hope this is helpful to you. If it is, I've got a small favor to ask you, and that's simply this. Would you tell a friend about this show, or would you leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Music or wherever you get your podcasts from? That would be really helpful. I'm doing this, well, for free. I'm not selling anything, and <laughs> I'd love your help to keep it going. If you are one of the many people who does find it interesting, please do spread the word. All right, let's get into it. The... Uh, first question we had uh, this uh, last meeting was about company formation and how to work with partners on an equity basis. So we had a young man who was interested in uh, collaborating with some partners. They had invited him to come in and handle uh, some of the duties. He was going to be mostly the marketing person. They had a product that they were going to import from overseas and they wanted to help market that online. So his questions were about uh, equity and vesting and partnerships and contractual agreements, that sort of stuff. So the summary answer to that is that it depends. <laughs> of course, it depends a lot, and you know that, right? But let's walk through a few of the steps that I would take and that our audience there at this Masterminds Orange County meeting had when we advised uh, this guy how to think about this, because he was a very smart guy, but not a lawyer, not an experienced startup employee. So here's how I would think about this. You're, you've asked, you've been asked to join a new startup, and you bring some skills. You don't bring the capital. You don't bring the product itself but you're going to essentially be working for your share of the company. So the first question to ask is, at what stage is the company now? In fact, is it actually a company 
Like legally, is it actually incorporated? How many founders are there? Where are they in the development of this idea? If this is a spin-off from a pre-existing operation, that's very different than an idea that a couple of buddies came up with at the bar late one night. So if he's going to be a new partner in this organization, you want to figure out how far are they. If the company's already been incorporated, it's probably already allocated its founding equity to the people involved. So you would be stepping in and asking for a share of that. Or if they were more sophisticated, they might already have an option pool set up, a pool of stock options that can be granted to employees. So it's important as a fundamental strategic point to figure out whether you, when you join this operation, are you a co-founder, meaning that you get the same type of stock that the other people have? This usually only happens when it's just getting started. Or are they a little farther along and they already have a legal structure and they've set up some things and allocated their initial equity, so you're coming in as an early employee, and that can look very different in terms of your ownership percentage. Then you want to figure out how much capital has been committed. Because everybody, can, you know, at the beginning of a startup, everybody's got great intentions and, and a lot of optimism. But the one thing that can't be replaced is cash. So if somebody, probably not you, put in, I don't know, $50,000, $500,000, something like that, to get things going, well, they're naturally going to have a larger percentage of the operation. And that's only fair. I think you would agree. But if that's not you, where does that leave you? So you need to know how much capital has been put in and how that ref is reflected in the equity share that's been determined for the original participants. Then, is anyone full-time? Are you expected to be full-time? What are the options in terms of employment hours, and what obligation do you have? Are they expecting you to quit your job? In which case you're taking a lot more risk than if you're just supposed to put in a couple hours every other weekend. This also would be reflected in the amount of equity given to you. How about profit sharing versus revenue sharing versus equity? I've met many people over time who are not interested in the equity per se. They're not that risk excited about risk or maybe they don't need the equity or for whatever they don't expect to be around that long and to vest the equity. They are more interested in cash so maybe there's a deal to be done in terms of revenue share or profit share and those two are different. This came up the other night I was out for drinks with a friend and uh, he was missing this distinction. A revenue share is just a percentage of sales so say you get 10% uh, of sales and the company makes a million dollars, you'd get $100,000 as your revenue share. That sounds pretty good, right? But a profit share is not the same thing. A profit share just means you get a percentage, let's say 10% again, but only of the profits, not of the gross sales. So say they still sold a million dollars, that's your gross revenue, your sales, but the actual profit they made, let's say they had a 20% profit margin, so they made $200,000 as profit. Well, you only get 10% of that, so you get $20,000. Very different, profit versus revenue share. But these are sort of different tools you can use to structure your compensation in a way that's uh, exciting to both you and the people that are hiring you. Another consideration to think about once you have these kind of general goal posts set up is vesting. Vesting is the idea that you grow to own something over time by your continued contributions. Now that's the key phrase, your continued contributions, but we'll get back to that in a moment. So vesting is the idea that um, you don't own it all right away. 
Now you might own your percentage right away if it say it's just you and a buddy and you decide that you're going to split it 50-50 or 70-30 or because uh, she's putting in the money or, or whatever it is, right? You might just start right away fully vested if you're truly one of the actual founders. But in most cases, when you're not, you will vest. And vest means that they're going to give you X number of shares or X percentage of the company and it will vest over time. Typical in Silicon Valley these days is four years with a one-year cliff. So let's say you were going to get 100,000 shares over four years. So you'd get 25,000 of them per year over four years, assuming you continued to contribute to the company and met your obligations and did everything that was expected of you. 25,000 shares per year. The first year it would be a cliff. So you'd get nothing for 11 months and 29 days. But at the end, there's a cliff. So you made your one-year anniversary. Bang, you get 25,000 shares. And you can keep those even if you leave the company after that. That's what vested means. Then after that, typically, the remaining 75,000 would vest one-third each over the next three years, so 25,000 a year, but more often it would vest, say, on a monthly basis or quarterly or something like that so that it, it kind of dribbles out a little more regularly so you don't uh, have another cliff there in case you were to leave the company. In the meantime, you don't lose you know, seven or eight or ten months of your vesting. All right, I hope that's helpful. Um, now, all that is the sort of types of things that you need to be thinking about when you're talking to partners about any sort of investment or your involvement in a startup situation. So I hope that that is an overview that's useful to you. And then I have a couple specific tips for you. The biggest tip, of course, go hire an attorney. <laughs> this is a complicated area, um, and you don't want to lose money, lose the opportunity of a lifetime by taking this too casually. You need to pay attention because there are lots of ways that you can get screwed, frankly. Uh, you can get diluted in, in future rounds as more money comes in. You could get fired and lose everything, especially if you hadn't yet vested. You could, um, you know, the uh, competition could come in and buy you and it may suddenly wipe out your vesting or your uh, your stock plan, uh, lots of different ways to lose your compensation in an equity environment. So this deserves real consultation with real adult attorneys. In the meantime, a couple ideas are that you can look online to find some typical sort of percentages. There's lots of stuff written about this. The, the basic mechanics of startup equity are not the mystery that they were 10 or 20 years ago. You can Google this and find a lot of articles pretty quickly. Uh, a couple resources that I liked in particular is one is called uh, founders.com and that's F-O-N-D-R-S so founders.com but without the E founders.com. They have a startup equity calculator which is pretty nifty and you can plug in some numbers and assumptions there about who's doing what and uh, it will give you some reasonable ideas, ballpark ranges of what might be appropriate in your situation. Very valuable and helpful thanks to founders.com without the E for that. Uh, they also have a pretty cool VC funding calculator uh, that can suggest whether your business is useful, uh, business is ripe for venture investment or not. Uh, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. It's not quite as serious, but it's still uh, not a bad idea. Then uh, there's also the Slicing the Pie book and website. Uh, there's a guy named Mike Murray who came up with a very nice uh, 
sort of approach. Uh, sorry, Mike Moyer. Mike Moyer and Mike Moyer has a uh, slicing the pie book and methodology that can help you do the math to figure out how founders, co-founders, and early employees should split up the equity in any new venture. And it helps adjust dynamically over time. And this is the big point that's really helpful, especially if you're a founder. You want the people that come behind you in terms of your employees and co-founders and so forth to have their equity adjusted as the situation changes. So you and your best friend may start the company, but if he suddenly uh, decides to move or go back to school or um, gets married or gets sick, God forbid, you know, things like that, things change along the way. And I've seen many startup situations where all the partners are gung-ho on day one, but over time, someone gets less excited, somebody gets a new and better job and quits, these sort of things. So the slicing the pie can help you adjust the uh, equity shares dynamically, and I would recommend that if this sort of question is of help or interest to you. Okay, one down. This is Scott Fox. We're talking through the questions and answers from my recent Masterminds OC session where we had a group full of uh, local entrepreneurs discussing real-life issues that they're facing in their entrepreneurial businesses. Question two, how to find and vet a co-founder? Now, this was interesting because this gentleman was uh, has an IT... Well, it wasn't really IT, it was more IoT, kind of Internet of Things, at a product that he is looking to develop, has a great idea that I won't disclose, but a very interesting idea in the security space, and he's going to, he wants to ramp it up, basically. And he's more the technical, um, he's more the technical person. He wants to find a co-founder who can lead uh, the biz dev and maybe be a CEO type for him. Uh, The problem is, and this is something I see a lot, I'm not sure he needs a co-founder. Finding a co-founder is a requirement in case of most incubators or accelerators or pre-accelerators or whatever you want to call them these days because investors really want to know that you are not alone and that you have the gumption to recruit somebody else to believe in your dream. So if you don't have a co-founder, it often is a problem in terms of these established programs that... um, you have to apply to. Now that doesn't mean that you need them for any kind of success. Their vision of what you should do with your company is not up to them. It's up to you. So first of all, you don't need a co-founder unless you want one. Now it's still recommended, but it doesn't have to be the end of the world. You might not get into the incubators, but you can make this happen anyway if you've got enough traction in your own mind and in the market. So um, point A, you don't need a co-founder unless you want one. Okay, B, assuming you do, well, or that you really are interested, I guess I'm voting against it for a second because what this gentleman wanted really was sales help. And I've heard this the reverse side too. I think we talked about this in the last episode where we had a gentleman who was a more marketing person and he wanted a technical co-founder. Well, in both cases, those are things you can hire. Now, I know you may not have a bunch of money right now. You're in startup mode, right? But Trying to bring on a co-founder implies that you want someone as equal to you in the business. And if that's what you want, right on, no problem. But often, and in this case I think is a good example, looking for a co-founder is really an excuse. It's an excuse to avoid leadership. It's an excuse for taking to avoid taking responsibility for the direction and trajectory of your venture. 
if you really have a vision, you have a product, you have a service, and you know how to do this, why would you give half of it or a big chunk of it away? Go do it. <laughs> Trying to find, delaying yourself and saying, oh, I need a co-founder, I need a co-founder, is really a speed bump that you've put in your own way because you're trying to avoid the loneliness of being a solopreneur or trying to avoid the fear. You're not sure anybody else really believes in this. And I understand that. Again, if, if you want to find a co-founder, fine. But this is two meetings in two months where I had guys from different sides of the balance sheet. <laughs> One was, like I said, a marketing person looking for tech, and this guy is tech looking for marketing help. Um, but they're in different fields, so no, don't email me and say, hey, you should introduce them to each other. I got that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it's really an excuse quite often. If you're serious about this, then stand up and be counted. Take a leadership role. You are the CEO, right? You can hire this other stuff and um, or talk somebody into doing it for equity or figure out how to put it on your credit cards. I mean, getting an, a business started is not always done by the Silicon Valley playbook, which is uh, you know find a co-founder because you went to Stanford University and you have a degree in computer science or whatever, and then you find your buddy who went to the business school, and then you raise money from your uncle for the seed round, and then you apply to an you apply to Y Combinator or an accelerator and chop 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 you know check the box check the box. That's not the way most companies are built. So so finding a co-founder, not a requirement, unless you want it to be, more often an excuse. All right, question number three. Rolling along here, this is Scott Fox, and if this is interesting to you, would you please uh, put out a review of the Click Millionaire Show or... Uh, just leave a five-star ranking somewhere or share it on Facebook or with a friend? Or even just send me an email, radio at scottfox.com, radio at scottfox.com. If you have a question you'd like me to discuss in a future episode, or even if you just find this helpful, I really appreciate knowing somebody's listening. Otherwise, I'll stop doing it. Okay, question number three. So this was a dramatic one. This gentleman came to the meeting, and I had met him before. Had a very cool startup company. It's a dot-com uh, in the e-commerce sort of space, just to give you background. But it doesn't matter so much because his problem is they're running out of money running out of money. They're pre-revenue, which is the <laughs> the buzzword from saying, we're not making anything and we're going broke. <laughs> and that's exactly what was happening. They had they raised some money, but they'd exhausted their friends and family. Um, there was some interest, even from professional investors, but they hadn't yet generated, generated enough traction. Uh, when they had a few sales, they were getting good commissions. There was interest. It's kind of a marketplace idea. They're getting good sides from good interest from both sides of both the suppliers and the uh, buyers. Um, but they had spent all their money. So at this point, he was at this meeting. They were, he was looking for a million dollars and thought they would probably spend about half of that on marketing and the rest just to keep going. Um, but they, if they didn't get it, they were going to be out of business and collapse in just two weeks. So he really was up against the wall here. Uh, a smart, nice guy, uh, but they had really not planned very well. Uh, they were going to try crowdfunding. Somebody suggested that. Hey, how about crowdfunding? He said, yeah, we were going to try that, but then we got distracted trying to just stay alive and trying to pitch VCs instead. So too late, basically. We'd like to do that, but we don't have time now. Well, how about the VCs? Well, the VCs, of course, do what VCs do. VCs, just uh, to clue you in on a big secret, or not so big secret, <laughs> uh, about venture capital, they never say no. If, if you have even a half-baked idea, they'll just say yes, 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 until they're ready. 
There you have no urgency, right? So they would rather just give you a bunch of bullshit yeses just to keep you on the hook in case you get it together and then you're, hey, you're, oh, you've been friends for a long time. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Now we want to come in and give you money now that you've got some traction. So he's, they've gotten a lot of yeses, but nobody'd actually written the check. Delay, delay, delay. So, um... Oh, and another point, they had tried to do some local accelerators. That's good, too. But, you know, those things operate sort of in classes or tranches or cohorts, whatever you call them. And they had waited too long. They had missed the local uh, accelerator application period sort of thing. And even if you do that, it takes X weeks or months to go through the program. And here they are with only two weeks left of cash. So he was, that was out also, because that's another good technique usually. So what do you do? What do you do? And there's a happy ending to this story, so don't worry, I'm getting there. Um, one suggestion was that a million dollars is an odd size, and I agree with that. It's, it's difficult to raise a million dollars. So if you're listening to this and thinking about raising money, a million dollars is tough because it's too small for a professional venture firm, and it's too big for your uncle or friends and family, unless you got a rich uncle, right? There are seed stage venture firms for sure, but a million dollars is kind of an odd number if you haven't really raised money before. Most investors would like to see that you raised, say, uh, between 100 and 400,000, and then you did something good with that, right? You raised 200 and you, and you got through this milestone and this milestone and ideally generated some revenue that showed how if you had now had millions, could get you to the next level. So a million dollars is a kind of neither fish nor fowl sort of funding level. So I would recommend against that. Uh, they should go back and try for 100 or 250, that kind of thing from friends and family is around, you know, maybe 10 people at 20 grand each sort of thing. Um, or go to a VC, in which case Series A rounds tend to be at least a million and a half, if not 3 million or even 5 million these days. The problem is, of course, they'd already done their friends and family round and we're out of money. So he left. Uh, oh, and so the, then the other thing was that the audience, the, the rest of the group, with Masterminds was like, well, if you're serious about this, how much do you need? I said $10,000. Well, only $10,000? Yeah, because $10,000 would get us to the point where we can do this market and we can run some very specific tests. We've learned our lesson not to squander the money kind of here and there, but we're going to run some very specific targeted tests that will show if we put in $1,000, we get $2,000 back or whatever the equation is, right? And they're going to run this a few times and show that they have some traction and that will make the case that they think they need to make to get uh, more money, more financing. So the audience suggested, hey, well, what kind of car are you driving? Sell it. How about that watch you're wearing? What's that worth? If you are serious, this is what you do. And the media again kind of portrays all there's all this infrastructure now portrays these incubators and accelerators as places you can go and they kind of prop you up along the way right if you're serious and this really is a good idea then do it do it all the way and if you do and you fail it really is going to hurt I've been there. I'm not going to talk about that today, but if you listen to some of my other podcasts um, yeah, I about bankrupted myself and you can survive that and move on, right? At least then you know. You know that you did your best. And if you're not ready to do that, that says something about your belief in the idea, too. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that strategy, 
because going broke is painful, and I don't think anybody needs to go through that if they don't want to. But if this guy is serious about his company getting there, and he honestly only needs $10,000, well, a lot of us could put that on a credit card, right? I mean, if you're going to do it, do it. But the happy news is that I was at an event last week, and this young man came and found me. He saw my name on the RSVP list, and he came and found me, and they got some money. <laughs> they got one of the friends and family stepped up with another chunk of money, and they are running their tests right now, and I sure, sure hope it works out for them. So those are all uh, goalposts or signposts for you if you're thinking about these sort of things to help you think about how to raise money and be smart about it. Oh, another idea that was brought up, and I forgot to mention this. I already gave away the story, but another was if they are working with a lot of uh, suppliers in their marketplace, you can often ask your best customers for money right? They will either give you money like as an investment, they may give you a loan, or they may give you some sort of credit in terms of the receivables or the income that you two are passing back and forth. They might allow you to not pay them essentially for a while and keep the money, and that cash flow can be enough to get you through things, especially if it's only $10,000 in a two-week period. Suppliers uh, can often float that kind of thing if they want to be involved and are supportive or you're providing them a valuable service. That's another thing to look at as a resource for financing. Okay, that was, I don't know, was that question number three? Okay, number four. So number four, we had a young woman uh, who is a, a coder, a developer. Always great to see uh, developers who are female. And she is an app developer, especially in Android. And she's having a big, well, a challenge, I guess, trying to figure out how to invest her time and what are the best projects to pick how do you find a good project and how do you discriminate between the projects either from your own idea you know you got three or four ideas how do you pick which one is the best or as a developer or any sort of freelancer people come to you and say hey I'd like you to help me with this or you know and you get three or four people say that so well I only have so many hours in the week do I want to do Fred's project or Ginger's project or Julie's project or or Muhammad's project which of these is the one where I want to invest my time so her question was, how, what are good ideas and techniques for product or idea validation? Now her initial idea was to give people surveys, um, and that's not bad. She certainly knew, did point out that when you try to hand out flyers to people on the street, they avoid it like the plague, so that's kind of old school. I wouldn't recommend that. And the best idea, um, and I'll tell you up front, we didn't have a great answer for this one, so I think there's an opportunity here for you if you're listening. but. The basic approach is generally to take out ads, pay-per-click ads, like on Google AdWords or on Facebook or something, that tease your idea. And so you spend, say, $50 or some manageable amount of money, and you get a bunch of clicks, and you figure out what are people most interested in. So you try variations on your topic, different uh, text uh, copy questions or links and then you send it over to a page where it either collects some information about the person and their interest level um, maybe ask them a short survey perhaps even incentivizes them by saying you want to you into a drawing for something if you fill out our survey that kind of thing that's that's much more successful than handing out paper flyers on the promenade these days that's kind of the most common way to do this and it, and it can be very effective you can spend 20 50 100 dollars and get some people that don't know you to actually respond to your ideas and that's valuable because of course if you tell your boyfriend or your mom or your sister-in-law you know 
they're going to say, oh, that's great. What a great idea. But that's because they love you, not because it's such a great idea necessarily. So you got to get out your own, outside of your own bubble and test a little bit. And pay-per-click is a good way to do that. Um, other ideas are, to, of course, to do keyword research. You can look at the amount of searches around any topic. Uh, the more sales data you can find, the better. But it really does come down to figuring out what your motivations are and what excites you the most and crossing that with profitability. So, I told you, I don't have a great answer for that one. Hopefully that gives you some ideas. But what it really does suggest to me is that there is a real business opportunity out there to help people diagnose their own idea value. How many ideas do you have and what do they look like, how to compare them. I actually did this in my uh, last book, in the Click Millionaires uh, book. There's an offer for you to get a PDF of this tool that I use and I developed my own checklist over many years it's called the uh, niche business identification worksheet and the checklist the niche business identification checklist and it has about 30 different categories and you can rank each one and then kind of add it up and you can compare ideas this way to see what kind of uh, traction or potential revenue there is and it also takes into account your own interests and your own lifestyle goals and it's the only instrument I know of that does that uh, and it's just a simple PDF but it, it still might be useful to you if, and if it is email me radio at scottfox.com and I'll send you a copy okay um, so I think there's a business opportunity for anybody there out there who's listening who can help other people more easily diagnose and appraise their own business opportunities the next question was about Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R, Zapier. Zapier, if you haven't heard of it, is a tool that integrates online with other services to tie them together and enable you to create actions or recipes. It's a lot like the If This Then That, which was a tool that a lot of people were using and talking about a couple of years ago. And Zapier is a, uh, there's a free level, like most things, there's a free level and there's a medium level and a high level. And... Uh, the question was if this was a good way to create some email workflow, there were workflow issues. So you can go to Zapier.com and you'll see that they hook up with hundreds, maybe thousands of different apps. So in this case it was how could you use it to link PayPal and Aweber together, or could you, uh, to link PayPal and Aweber together so that if you got an email that there was a sale at PayPal, it would then um, do this thing with your emails and file it and subscribe or unsubscribe, that kind of stuff. So it's if this happens, then this happens sort of idea. And Zapier is a good tool for that. And uh, there's been some success with using that in uh, since the meeting. Um, the trick, of course, was that you can spend as much time customizing and learning it um, as you do using it. But at the end of the day, if you do that, it is a lot cheaper than having people do these kind of things if those if that has been your um, your traditional approach, uh, especially if it's your own time and you're a solopreneur who's time challenged like most of us, you can farm it out to Zapier and uh, they'll uh, the software should handle a lot of it for you. All right, um, let's see, we got one, two more questions here and then we'll wrap it up. So uh, let's see, this gentleman, let me remember this one. Okay, so he has an existing business Okay, this is interesting. So uh, I'm going to leave the specifics out, but I think the principle is interesting. I guess we're doing a lot of strategy and principles today, so I hope this is interesting to you. And if it is, please let me know, or like I said, share or leave a comment, that kind of thing. 
Um, he has a business and he's doing pretty well, but he, he's, he's young and he wants to learn more about it. And he wants to actually develop a software product that he can license into this industry. Now the details are obviously much more complex than that, but here's the question that I thought was interesting. He was asking us, the Masterminds group, if he should um, if he should learn this industry by working, going and getting a job in the industry, or else starting his own company and doing it himself. And I thought that was interesting because it's a kind of a false choice. There's a lot of options between just going to work from someone else and then working entirely by yourself. And this is me speaking now. I, I, I spoke up and I said, um, well, I think the in-between you should consider, and I'm suggesting this to you here on this podcast, because a lot of people tend to think binary like that. It's this or it's that. And not usually. <laughs> There's lots of in-between usually. And in this case, if you're thinking about an industry that you'd like to know more about, you don't necessarily have to go and work there. Although you can, working in an industry is a great way to learn it, right? It's a scholarship. They pay you to learn it. So I absolutely am in favor of that. My only point is that instead of working for the man or being the man, you can partner with the man. In this industry that he was talking about, there are lots of local uh, examples of this, and there's no reason he couldn't get his solo thing going a bit and then approach some of these companies to partner with them. He could offer them um, the service that he's creating through the software, or he could uh, charge them money, or maybe even uh, take a percentage Either, either that they pay on a per-use basis, only on, you know, if it works, or he could even just sell it's completely free except that he gets a percentage of the upside. But if he has a service, and this is true for you too, if you have a service or a product that's useful to people, you don't have to go to work for them. You can work with them, and that way you're treated more as an equal, and you could make some money and get the education as well. So I, uh, I thought that was a valuable distinction, and maybe you do too. Okay, our last question for today was from a lady who has a very interesting uh, professional background, but she hates her job. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> She's got 25 years in in an industry that is just kicking her butt. She's tired of it, and she wants to get out. So she came to the Masterminds meeting wanting to know what the best way was to set up workshops because she wanted to go out and start holding um workshops for people that could teach them how to be internet entrepreneurs. So she came to my internet entrepreneur workshop to find out how to teach people to be internet entrepreneurs. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but I'm happy to help. And the problem is that she's got 25 years of something else. She's got degrees and credentials, expertise, relationships. Why would you want to go and start over in a field she knows relatively nothing about and that is full of competition? It's easy to teach how to start internet businesses these days. Anybody can do that. But there's not that many people who really have done it and know what they're talking about. Hopefully you count me as one of those if you're listening to this podcast. But anyway, so I was happy to help her. Um, she could certainly teach herself about things. You know, you can go on Coursera or edX to learn almost anything these days, pretty much for free, Khan Academy. Um, but I just wasn't sure why she would do that. And here's my point. If you want to leave, okay, I get it. Yeah, I've left many jobs. Uh, quitting has got a lot of benefits to it. But if you're going to do that, you don't need to be a copycat. Don't Just because something's new and sexy to you doesn't mean it's new and sexy and profitable to everyone else that's doing it. 
I would really look at the skills and expertise you have already. And this is what the Click Millionaires book is all about, by the way, uh, and what we talk about in the forum all the time also at mastermindsforum.com. But if you're going to go start something, well, why not build on the expertise you have that's unique and that people already value? So sure, you want to get out, but if you have relationships, education, uh, a track record, credentials, credibility in a field, whether it's driving a forklift or uh, as a professional bicyclist or a software coder, or a doctor, whatever it is, I would look there first. I would look there first, either to provide services back into that industry because you know where the holes are. You know where the holes are, right? Think about your job. Where are all the things that could be done better? Well, those are opportunities for you. And you already know people in the industry, right? So where could things be done better in the industry? Are there holes in the way that they deal with customers or suppliers or inventory or information? Are there uh, events that you could set up or a blog about the industry? Whether it's professional and business and regulatory news or it's just uh, fluff, you know, like who got the biggest bonuses and, and had the best Christmas party this year in the industry? Gossip. Or could you teach things back to other people in your industry who also want to leave? A lot of industries are full of people who don't like what they're doing. Or they're just afraid that they're going to get downsized and kicked out anyway. So if you know that industry, you can, all, you can go and speak their language and help train them to do something else. All of those are ideas that I think could be more profitable, more interesting for her, and more fulfilling, frankly, but most importantly more profitable than trying to start from scratch in, an, in a new industry. So that's, uh, yeah, I guess that's my final thought on that. So today, this is Scott Fox, and the Masterminds Forum is where we talk about all this stuff, mastermindsforum.com. So if these sort of topics are of interest to you, come over to mastermindsforum.com. There's a free trial, and I'll work with you personally. That's what I do. It's a small group, and I started it to help people. And it's not free. But uh, we got to pay the costs, and i got to pay something for my time. <laughs> I owe it to my kids, not to give all my time away. But I hope that this podcast was of interest to you. And if it was, please tell a friend or send me an email, radio at scottfox.com, with your questions or, or kudos or complaints, and I'll get to that on the next episode of Click Millionaire's Radio. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.